Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. You're a Nobel Prize winner. We've talked about North Korea a little bit. There is some talk already uh, among the president's supporters that uh, he should be getting the Nobel Prize for the North Korea uh, communications that he's had so far. How do you feel about that? Well, not not so far, but if if, uh, President Trump is successful in getting a a peace treaty that's acceptable to both sides with North Korea, uh, I think he certainly ought to be considered for the Nobel Peace Prize. I think it would be worthy and a momentous accomplishment that no previous president has been able to realize. Today's guest, Jimmy Carter, the 39th president of the United States, 2002 Nobel Prize winner, author of 32 books, the new one is called Faith, and 93-year-old cancer survivor who still has a whole lot to say. Everything about making this one happen was a little bit crazy. I'd reached out to Carter last year hoping to sit down with him. Between his international experience, his approach to politics, he said he voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries, for example, but he'd taken a more open approach to Trump than most Democrats. He's been all over the world, working on all sorts of things. But he has, as we talked about in this interview, not the best reputation out in the country, and he's always the odd man out among the fraternity of ex-presidents. Carter's staff said no then, but it stayed in my mind. Then, just two weeks ago, we heard from Liberty University, the Evangelical Christian College in Lynchburg, Virginia, that Carter was going to be there and willing to do a few interviews before delivering the commencement address. Within a few days, it was on the books. The catch, we had to drive three and a half hours to Lynchburg to do it. But hey, Carter is the first former president to be on the podcast. By the way, we've reached out to the other living ex-presidents, and hopefully those will work out too. And of course, we were willing to do the drive. Well, Zach, producer here, did all the driving through the rain. So he deserves the credit for getting us there. But it was worth it, even once we got to the campus on the morning of the announcement, got lost and started to get worried that we wouldn't get there in time. But we did. They put us in a room. We started setting up. We had about 15 minutes to get all the mics up. Or so we thought. About 90 seconds after we walked in, they said, here comes Carter. Here he comes. And there he was. He ambled over, took a seat on the couch in the room while we were still scrambling to get everything together. All the wires hooked up. He didn't really laugh at my joke about how neither of us were invited to the royal wedding, which was happening right about when we turned the mics on. His staff told us we'd only get 15 minutes. That's as long as he goes for any interviews these days. They were pretty firm about it, and he still has Secret Service agents with him, so I couldn't push it too much. The interview runs just under 17 minutes. I know, a whopping extra two minutes, though we squeezed in a few interesting bits in that extra time. It's our shortest episode yet, I think, though it's action-packed, and I'm really glad we were able to do it. And since we are at Liberty... He wanted to talk a little bit about religion and faith and politics, and that seemed like a good idea. And it gave us a chance to get into the question of moral leadership, which we've explored on the podcast in past episodes, like that one with conservative evangelical leader Tony Perkins a few months back, which I'd encourage you to download now if you haven't. Please check out the article up on the Politico website off of this one, and there you'll see more about the speech that he delivered at Liberty after we spoke, including his opening joke making fun of Trump, and what Jerry Falwell Jr. said he's heard from Trump himself about Carter. It's not what you might expect. And if you haven't done it already, make sure you're subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher or however you're listening. Rate us. Leave a comment. All that goes into that algorithm that helps get off message to more and more people. Or just do it directly. Tell someone you know, a family member, a friend, coworker. The people we've got coming in the weeks and months ahead as the midterms get closer are really interesting. You're not going to want to miss any of them. That conversation with Tom Steyer on impeachment activism is coming up. Kirsten Gillibrand. Many more. Follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover. And send me your thoughts and suggestions to Isaac at Politico.com. I love hearing from you. And now, my conversation with Jimmy Carter. We're here at Liberty University. You've written another book about faith. Yes. 
I wonder if you can talk about how you think people read the same verses in the Bible, have the same sets of beliefs, and some people end up Republicans and some people end up Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true, but human beings are all different. But I think believers in Jesus Christ have the same basic moral ambitions, at least, and we don't meet them all fully. But uh, the things that bind us together as Christians or as Jews or as Muslims are much greater than the things that divide us. And we know that there's a, a great division among the Jewish people. There's a great division among Protestants and Catholics. There's a great division among Muslims and, I, I guess, Hindus and Buddhists as well. So uh, each, each religion has its own divisions, but, but the, the overall faith is a, should be a healing factor. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to come to Liberty, where people that have different political beliefs probably are overwhelming here, but uh, they've been very gracious to me, and I'm, I'm very grateful for a chance to come and speak. Do you worry about how the religious political divisions have risen up in America? Well, I, I do. I worry about how all divisions. We have, have a polarized society, and part of that has been due to the fact that uh, money has permeated the uh, campaigns tremendously. There's so much money involved. In now, you have to have $250 million or so just to get the Democratic or Republican <laughs> nomination. When I ran for president against Gerald Ford, who was incumbent president, and later against Ronald Reagan as a challenger, we didn't raise a single penny right. for the general election. We just got the, the $1 per person checkoff. But now... Money's just yeah, it's a different thing. Over, yeah. I, I think most people would, at this point, think about people who have strong Christian beliefs. Whether it's fair or not, most people would associate with Republicans. You're a Democrat. You're a proud Democrat. Well, that's not, I don't think that's exactly true. I don't know how it would divide. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the more moderate or liberal people who have the same faith, uh, I don't know how, what the numbers would be. Sure. Uh, but, but the news media has... Uh, anointed the more conservative uh, Christians as evangelicals. I consider myself to be, be an mm -hmm. evangelical as well. So I, th I think that's kind of an artificial delineation that has uh, arisen. Do you think it's the media or do you think it, it's people who have mixed, who have stood as religious leaders but also gotten involved in as political actors, not as candidates themselves? Well, there are about 1,900 churches that are more moderate mm -hmm. Baptists, uh, and we're just as evangelical as the more conservative churches. We, we send missionaries overseas. We, we try to minister, I like, like myself, through my Bible teaching and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't draw that distinction mm -hmm. except it's just a, a choice that everybody makes, every, every American makes. Christians are not about whether to vote Democratic or Republican. And as you know, uh, most of the recent elections have been uh, pretty close, close contested yep. and, and, and divided. We had eight years of Democratic yep. administration before, before President Trump was elected, elected. And I think the Democrats have a good chance in the future. So it goes back and forth, which is a good thing in a democracy. Do you think that we need to—you'd like to see 
more people relying on uh, their faith and talking about uh, religion in public life and and in politics. Is that I would. I, I think I think God, the God that I worship, and probably that other people worship, um, want want the believers to get involved in public affairs. Mm-hmm. I felt that way when I ran for state senate and then governor and, and president, and I still feel that way. I, th- I think that. Uh, it's not a, a contrary thing, but I believe in a strict separation of church and state. Sure. Once, once somebody's elected, I don't think uh, I don't think a president should use his, his or her office to perpetuate or to strengthen one's own chosen religion. I think we need to treat every American equally, whether whether they're non-believers at, at all, or or Christians or. Buddhist or Jews, right. I think that ought to be distinct. And you felt like it was a necessary thing for you when you were president in the time since all the leadership positions you've had to have that to fall back on and and be there constantly. Well, I've been grateful for it. I wouldn't say necessary to hold office, <laughs> but uh, it certainly was uh, a reassuring thing for me and a matter of substance. I never found any real deep divisions between my religious beliefs and my political duties. Do you think we need moral leadership uh, in this well, country? Well, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I, think, I think the basic moral values I'm going to talk about today that never change, you know, a belief in democracy and freedom and equality of people and uh, hum, basic human rights uh, should and peace, of course. Christians worship the Prince of Peace, and I think we should try to work as much as we can, either in public office or not, uh, to promote those principles in which we believe as Christians and as others. Do you think we need a moral leader a- as the president? Well, I, I personally do, but uh, I don't think we should have a religious... Uh, Not a religious leader, but a, yeah. a, a, the idea of moral leadership coming yeah, from I, the presidency. I, I think I think the president ought to tell the truth. I think the president ought to be for peace. I think the president ought to treat everybody equally. Uh, so equality and peace and the truth and uh, I say basic justice uh, are some of the moral values that I think every president should have. I, I'll ask you about our current president. Do you think that we're getting moral leadership out of the president right Well, I'll now? let other people make that judgment. You know, I'm not here to judge people. Uh, I didn't vote for President Trump, and, and I disagree with many of his policies, but he has fervent supporters who, sure. who are Christians and 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 who share the face uh, that disagree with me. Is there an effect from not having the moral leadership in, when you don't see it there in the White House? Well, I think it makes us much more likely to treat people differently mm-hmm. and to discriminate against uh, either African Americans or, or others who are different if you don't have any religious faith. I think it's uh, probably more difficult to elevate human rights to a top priority and, and things like peace and justice, yes. We'll be right back with President Carter after this message. Uh, you, you referred almost to the, the standard that Walter Mondale had said about your presidency. We, we told the truth, we obeyed the law, we kept the peace. Uh, uh-huh. How are we doing as a country in that sco- on that scorecard? Well, so far as we've We've been peaceful. I, I, I think we, under previous presidents, we got involved in unnecessary wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was proven in retrospect, at least, that, uh, that Vietnam was an unnecessary war. Uh, I think the, the Iraqi invasion was unnecessary and, and others. 
So uh, I tried and succeeded, as a matter of fact, luckily, this president to keep our country completely at peace and also to promote peace with others and in other countries that didn't involve us directly uh, and to be a champion of human rights. So those, those are the things I still think are important. And, and for this administration, are they, how are they doing on that scorecard? Well, so far we've remained at peace, and I understand that, that President Trump has spoken out for withdrawal from, of our troops from Afghanistan and, and, uh, and not to get directly involved except to our bombers uh, in, in uh, Syria and mm-hmm. so forth. And if, if we can be successful in concluding a, a, a peaceful treaty, say, a peace with North Korea, that would be a notable achievement. Mm-hmm. I hope it'll be successful. Uh, no, nobody knows yet. Yeah. And they, they obey the law and, and told the truth, uh, that you seem to have some questions about the truth-telling. Well, I'm not here to criticize, but I think that, that uh, you know, telling the truth is one of the basic moral values that's important. And, and obeying the law is an oath that all of us take before we assume public office. I wonder if you can speak about you and your presidency and since have been through a lot of things, uh, what it's like when you're in the middle of a crisis, when you're in the middle of a diplomatic negotiation, how do you know which way it's going? What, and how do you focus on where you are on any given day versus the overall arc that you're looking for? Well, you, you have to treat your adversaries or both parties in a, if you're meeting a, a problem uh, equally. You have to try to make sure that both sides come out winners you know, when you, when you reach an agreement. I think you have to treat each other with respect. Uh, and my high school teacher, I'm going to quote her today in my speech, used to say, we must cling, we must uh, accommodate changing times, like rapid transportation and communication and social media and so forth, but cling to principles that never change. And we've already discussed some of those principles. What do you think of moving the embassy to Jerusalem? I think it was a mistake. I believe the only solution that would be good for, for Israel is a two-state solution with um, living side by side with uh, Palestinians who will have to accept the right of Israeli people to live in peace as well. Does the move change the process? Is it, is it a fatal blow to peace? I hope it's not fatal, but I think it was a, certainly a damaging blow to peace. You're a Nobel Prize winner. Yes. We've talked about North Korea a little bit. Uh, there, there is some talk already uh, among the president's supporters that uh, he should be getting the Nobel Prize for the North Korea uh, communications that he's had so far. How do you feel about that? Well, not, not so far, but if, if uh, President Trump is successful in getting a, a peace treaty that's acceptable to both sides with North Korea, uh, I think he certainly ought to be considered for the Nobel Peace Prize. I think it would be a, a worthy and a momentous accomplishment that no previous president has been able to realize. It's been some years since you dealt with the North Koreans directly. What do you think needs to be kept in mind in dealing with them? It's a different leadership, obviously, but... Well, what I've spent a lot of time in North Korea. I've spent more than 20 hours of intense discussion with the top leaders uh, in North Korea, including Kim Il-sung, who is practically worshipped by the North Korean people. Uh, and what they have always wanted is a binding treaty with the United States that, tr- that the United States will not 
attack them as long as they stay at peace with their neighbors, South Korea and Japan and so forth, and also that we lift the economic blockade that's been imposed on North Korea now for almost 65 years. We've done everything we could to destroy the economy of North Korea. And they feel every North Korea knows that. And we've done everything at the same time that we could to help South Korea have a good, successful economy. So I think that the North Korean people ought to be treated with respect. Uh, and I think that the embargo that we've enforced on them has basically hurt the people who are already suffering under a brutal dictatorship and has not hurt the leaders of North Korea very And in, much. in negotiating with them, it seems like people worry that they're erratic, that they're uh, going to be gaming us, perhaps, that they, it's, they're hard to predict. What do you do about that? Well, I can understand how they feel like, you know, if, if, if they are under constant belief that the United States wants to attack them, even usually nuclear weapons, which many Democrats and Republican leaders in our country has Certainly. mentioned as a possibility, and it, we are destroying their economy, and they, they know that they are starving to death, primarily because the United States withholds food aid, for instance, just giving them surplus food that we can't ever use, uh, then I can understand how they feel. And so I think that uh, the next mediator, uh, next negotiator, maybe President Trump, I hope, will reassure them that we're willing to give up some of those things, the threat of attack on them and, and to lift the embargo. That would be a, a cheap price, in my opinion, to pay for a cessation of their nuclear. Yeah, but you're, you're rooting for that summit to happen. I am, yes. Yeah. I, I think it would be a, a good chance. It's, been, it's an unprecedented chance. I wonder, it's been uh, 38 years since you were president. I'm mm. sure it both seems like a day and uh, much longer than that. <laughs> uh, you are... You can still be in politics a polarizing figure. I remember, I was thinking as we were driving here, remembering Mitt Romney attacking Obama in 2012 by comparing Obama to you. <laughs> How do you feel about when, when that happens, when people use it, sort of invoke you in that way? Well, I, I don't like to be compared unfavorably <laughs> by anybody, of course. I'm, I'm a human being, but, but I've, you know, I'm accustomed to it, and I know that in politics, you have to be willing to roll with the punches and and to take the bad ones and, and enjoy the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you feel through everything you've been through, like and everything you've seen the country through. People talk about this as a dark moment. Maybe was, I was talking to a Democrat who said it's one of our darkest moments. <laughs> how do you? What would you put that in? How would you put where we are now in the spectrum of where we are as a country? Well, I've been through two major crises, particularly in my early years, that, that exceed what we're doing now. One was the Second World War, when 60 million people were killed. And the first one, the earliest one, was the Great Depression, when 35% of American people were unemployed. And so, compared to those times, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're well off now. But uh, there's a great disparity in income among people, brought about by favoritism toward heavy campaign contributors. And uh, we, we still are a kind of a polarized nation. It's not only between Democrats and Republicans, but even between many white people and, and African-Americans uh, because of white people consider ourselves to be superior. So I think we ought to treat everybody as equals, and, and, and that's, that's the essence of justice. With all the work you've done to promote democracy around the world, do you think 
democratic ideals, all that stuff that people sometimes talk about right now, are they under threat? I think in so. I think there's a general feeling on a global basis that democracy has reached its peak and is declining. But I hope that um, that trend will reverse. All right. President Jimmy Carter, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Isaac. So he thinks Trump isn't a moral leader, and that's dangerous. The Jerusalem embassy move is a mistake, but also that Trump should get the Nobel if North Korea works out. Doesn't quite fit into any easy box, which is part of what drives a lot of people crazy about Jimmy Carter. What do you make of it? Consistent? Frustrating? Surprised that a Democratic leader would make the trip to Liberty University and stand with Jerry Falwell Jr.? Or is it something you'd like to see more of? Email me at isaacapolitico.com and let me know. But there it is in the history books, the first former president we've done on Off Message, and the oldest guest. He's 93, so he edges out Bill Perry, the former defense secretary, and Dolores Huerta, who were right up there themselves. Thanks to Zach Stanton for producing, and again, for doing the drive with me back and forth to Lynchburg. Make sure you're subscribing. Tom Steyer, Kirsten Gillibrand, and more are coming up. And do the rating, leave a comment. While you're at it, follow me on Twitter, at Isaac Dover. And catch you next time on Off Message.